the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There has been an assumption every year that whoever I ask to be our retreat speaker is a good friend of mine, and that's actually not the case. Uh, Our first few retreat speakers were just people that I knew that had a great passion for the Lord, were powerful preachers, and have done uh, much for the church uh, in the United States, uh, mostly, and, and as well as their own local churches. Uh, This weekend's retreat speaker also falls in line with people who are passionate for the church, uh, who love the Lord, who have done great things for their local church, Uh, but this year's speaker is different in that he is a very good friend of mine. Uh, Hopefully you had a chance to read the bio in the uh, handout. That was the same one we emailed out a few weeks ago. Um... And generally, because we are missing about a quarter or a third uh, of our group on the first session, either they're still on their way or a lot of the parents are with the kids uh, who are in bed already in their rooms, I, I don't like to do a lot of, of introduction. I kind of save it for the next day, and that's going to be the case uh, tonight as well. But I will tell you this. Uh, my good friend, Dr. John Sito, uh, is a senior pastor. Uh, newly in that role officially, although they kind of put him as an interim senior pastor for almost a year now, and he uh, faithfully did that job and now is in a position that he, uh, in my opinion, should be. Uh, He has a doctorate of ministry from Southern Seminary in Biblical Counseling. So for those of you who uh, went to NCT or are interested in that, you could uh, talk to him, and he had a really uh, very practical a final project that I think would be even helpful for for our church uh, someday in implementing uh, basically training lay people to do premarital counseling instead of just uh, elders or pastors. Anyways, I, I have known uh, Pastor John for 20 years now. Um, so I met him uh, when I was nine. And no... <laughs> Uh, so I actually met him. I, I had to ask him. Uh, that's why some of you saw me go back. I'm like, when was it that, that we met? I actually met him his freshman year at UCLA, and it happened to be my first year uh, at the Master Seminary, but I was still on the UCLA campus doing ministry. And so uh, we met and, and uh, had similar passions and were able to uh, become really close friends and, and stay in touch over all of these years. And in fact, we're 11 years ago were in each other's weddings on successive Saturdays. So Janie and I got married, and then the next Saturday, John and Miranda got married. So John's going to introduce you to his family. I know Miranda and the kids need to, uh, the kids need to go to bed soon, um, but they're back there if you want to say hi, and they're going to be with us uh, all weekend. But again, I'm going to share more uh, about my good friend uh, John tomorrow morning, but without further ado, would you please welcome up Dr. John Sito. So as Roger was uh, saying, uh, we'll introduce ourselves a little bit more. I'll explain a little bit more about uh, my interactions uh, with Roger over the years, uh, both fun, 
memorable, and maybe embarrassing, uh, depending on how much you bribe me. But uh, it's a picture of my family. Um, and uh, as you can see, my wife and I are, are busy, and we have our hands full with four, uh, four little ones. Uh, we have two boys and two girls. These are our two boys, Nathaniel on the left, Josiah on the right. Uh, they are enjoying themselves over some ice cream. And then these are my two girls, Carissa on the right and Anora on the left. Um, so if you, see, uh, if you see four little children running around, I don't know, doing something they shouldn't do, uh, please let us know. <laughs> um, I, hope you, I hope we do get a chance to, to talk and... Uh, hopefully you get to interact and uh, just share life together uh, this weekend. Retreats are very special times. Uh, and, um, you know, at the church where I'm at, due to some sort of uh, issues in the past, we actually don't do retreats, not as a big church. Uh, and it's something that I have missed uh, since uh, serving uh, at the church I serve at now. Uh, so I do hope you appreciate all the work, the labor, uh, and the love and the care that goes into uh, putting together a retreat like this. Because, let's face it, sometimes on a Sunday morning, you're busy. You've got to go do this, do that, do that, do that. And you're like, oh, no, that person's leaving. Oh, that person's out of town. And you just want a chance to sit down and catch up. Uh, well, this is your weekend. Uh, this is your opportunity to do that. And so it's a, it's a blessing, uh, and I highly encourage you to pursue biblical fellowship and to pursue relationships with each other on a deeper level. So when I asked uh, Roger, uh, I said, hey, what do, you, what do you want for your retreat theme? Do you have a retreat theme? He was just kind of like, it's kind of open. Uh, and so after a while, we, we, we talked about it, we thought about it, and so we came down to the theme for our retreat being marks of maturity. As we all endeavor to grow in our faith, we want to become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want to grow in the understanding and the practice of our faith. We want to become more mature. That should be the goal and the desire and the aspiration of every single Christian on the face of the earth. I mean, we certainly don't want to grow weaker. <laughs> we certainly don't want to become, oh, I don't know, more demonic. Uh, we, we want to become more Christ-like, right? So the question is, what does spiritual maturity look like? Is it something visible? Do you know that someone's spiritually mature because you see some sort of glowing halo atop their head? What, what, is, what is spiritual maturity and what does it look like? Is spiritual maturity something that you hear about as you talk with other believers? Is it something that you can see and observe in the life of another person? Well, this weekend we're going to examine four episodes from the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And each message is intended to present a different mark of Christian maturity. And so the first mark for this evening is, if you, if you want to look at a mature Christian, a mature Christian has a deep faith in God. A deep faith in God. So please join me in our passage for this evening found in Luke chapter 7. And as you turn there, let me just give us a little context so that we can get a running start into the passage. Jesus inaugurated his earthly ministry by obeying God and being baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist in Judea, the southern part of Israel. And after being baptized, he went back to his hometown in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. And it was in that region of Galilee that Jesus first met Peter and formally called his 12 disciples and, and the initial 
the initial stages of Jesus' ministry were held up in the northern part, kind of closer to his hometown. By the time you reach the seventh chapter in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is about halfway through his three and a half years of earthly ministry. He's been preaching and teaching in the local synagogues. He regularly heals people who were sick or disabled, which, of course, went against the religious establishment. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they really started being annoyed by Jesus. They didn't like how Jesus did things. He was different. And he was different from them. And Jesus was getting more and more popular. His teaching drew crowds. His healing astonished and amazed people left and right. But these Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't like Jesus. They just said, who's this new guy in town? And why doesn't he do things the way that we do them? Why is he so different? And during this period of ministry, Jesus would preach for extended lengths of time. And the the chapter before, chapter 7 in Luke, is Luke's account of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So tonight we're going to look at a special portion of Scripture because when you think about it, it's one of the first times, or one of the only times in all of recorded Scripture where it says that Jesus is amazed in a good way. Think about it. For the, most, for the majority of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is the one who is amazing. Right? In Luke chapter 4, verse 32, it says that people were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. People were also amazed at Jesus' ability to heal. They had never seen anything like it before. So when Jesus cast out a demon from a man who disturbed the synagogue, Luke 4.36 says that amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another saying, what is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic who was lowered through a roof. And scripture says that people were struck with astonishment. They were amazed. So Jesus is the one who consistently amazes people. He astonishes them. They're intrigued and they wonder, who in the world is this guy? And he amazes them in in a good way, in a positive way. So I guess the question is, what would it take to amaze Jesus? What would it take to amaze the Son of God? Well, look with me at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. And follow along with me as I read it. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. 
and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Verse 9, Jesus says, he marveled at him. In other words, Jesus was amazed. Jesus found something in the faith of this centurion man that was amazing. It was impressive. It was noteworthy. And so tonight we're going to examine five characteristics of an amazing faith. Five characteristics of an amazing faith. The first is that faith results in dependence on God. Faith results in dependence upon God. Verses 1 to 3. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Now Luke, uh, Luke 7 verse 1 gives us a clue about when this happened. He just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he heads back to Capernaum. And the Bible says that the centurion's slave was sick to the point of death. So this centurion decides to send some Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and save his slave's life. Now a couple of questions for us to kind of understand who this man is. What was a centurion like? What characterized a centurion? Well, centurions were soldiers in the Roman army who were appointed over approximately 100 soldiers, making them basically middle-ranked commanders. They were considered the backbone of the Roman army. They oversaw 10 decurions who oversaw 10 men. And so it was through the centurion that massive movements of troops would take place. They were kind of a, a fighting unit. Now, when they were engaged in battle, centurions were the kind of men who led from the front. They were not generals sitting in the back in the comfort of a tent. They were the ones who led the charge. They were the ones who typically, if there was a rectangular formation, they would have been in the front right or the front left. They would have been up front for everyone to see. When they raised the sword, all the men looked and said, that is my commander. That is my centurion. He doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. He doesn't just teach us and train us. He goes with us and he fights with us. So a centurion was a man's man. A centurion was respected and highly regarded, not just because of what he taught and what he was able to do, but because he proved it. He proved it. While they could be appointed by the Senate or promoted, uh, they, they could be promoted by the Senate, usually what happened was centurions were promoted from within because they had proved themselves in battle after battle. And because they also, centurions tended to die a lot, they would be, there would be a, a battlefield promotion. And they were usually about 30 years or older and could have been from any ethnicity. Now, it's important to notice that whenever you look at centurions mentioned in the Bible, they are always regarded favorably. When you think about it, it was the centurion who said, surely this man was the son of God when Jesus was crucified. In Acts chapter 10, God answers the prayers of a centurion named Cornelius by sending Peter to explain the gospel to him. When Paul was about to be beaten illegally in Jerusalem, 
It was a centurion who stopped the beating when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen. It was a centurion who saved and intervened, uh, who saved Paul and intervened in an assassination attempt upon him in Acts 23. When Paul later on was about to be shipwrecked, one of the soldiers was going to kill all the prisoners on the ship to avoid, uh, to, to avoid the risk of them escaping. And a centurion stepped in and said, we should not kill them. So whenever scripture speaks about centurions, it's, it's favorable. Now, why would this centurion ask for Jesus' help? Centurions were relatively rich compared to most of the people in Israel. And I just told you that centurions were very capable soldiers on the battlefield. But in this particular situation, we have a centurion asking for Jesus' help because he had heard about Jesus' ability to heal. And it makes sense because this episode occurs in Capernaum, the site of some of Jesus' most famous miracles. He casts out a demon from a demon-possessed man. He heals Peter's mother-in-law of a high-grade fever. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic lowered through the roof. These are all things that took place in Capernaum. And all of this to point out that you have this man who is nameless, but you have a title, you have a rank. You have a man who is a centurion. And he's a capable man. He's a highly regarded man. He's a man that didn't take no handouts. He was a man who earned it. He was a self-made man. A self-made man of that era, of that time. He occupied his post because of the skill that that he exhibited. Because of the training that he underwent. But when his slave becomes sick, this centurion turns to Jesus. He reaches out and depends upon God. This capable centurion appeals to the sovereign Savior for help. His faith results in dependence on God. Because as much as the centurion is capable, he knows that there is a higher power. He knows that there is something beyond his ability. He knows he can't do everything by himself. And he knows that he needs God. When we are pressed and when we face difficulty, where do we turn? To whom do we look? You know, oftentimes Christians are out there, they're kind of going, I'll do it myself. And then when it, okay, when it really gets tough, I'm going to look to God. But true faith says this, that I am nothing. (laughs) True faith has this understanding that God can do all things. And that he invites me into this relationship. And I'm the one who needs him. Maurice Roberts has put it this way, if God be God, then no insoluble problems exist. And if God be my God, then no problem of mine is without its appropriate solution. There is in God just exactly what is needed to solve every riddle of life. Such a being as God is that, that he comprehends in himself all that we could ever need to neutralize all evils, veto all temptations, negate, negate all sorrows, and compensate all for all losses. 
Scripture further reminds us in 1 Peter that you ought to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Amazing faith is first and foremost dependent upon God. It means leaning on God. It means turning to God first when you encounter difficulty. He's not your backup. He's your only viable option. Where do you turn when you are in trouble? Where do you turn when you are pressed? When you feel pressures in life? There's a pressing deadline. There's a huge presentation. You just drink another, you down another, you know, quadruple espresso? Is that, is that, is that where we turn? You down a five-hour energy drink? Or do we take the time to acknowledge that we need God's empowerment? You see, we would all be willingly, we would all willingly and openly confess that we have to depend upon God's grace for our salvation. But there are times we can be guilty of depending on ourselves for our sanctification, for our growth, and even for the issues that we encounter in life. But true faith, amazing faith, actively depends upon God. Second, Faith results in fruits of the Spirit. Faith, first of all, results in dependence on God. And second, faith results in fruits of the Spirit. And here, there are three specific fruits visible from this passage. Look with me at verses 4. Look with me at verse... uh, Well, look with me first of all at verse 2. It says, And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. Now notice it says that the centurion slave was highly regarded by him. In other words, the centurion really liked and loved and cared for his slave. Now this slave would have been probably a young boy that the centurion took a special care for. And during these times, we remember that slavery is in full effect. Unlike slavery of the 1800s, Roman slavery was not based on skin color or ethnicity. It was just based upon being conquered in battle or having dire financial straits. But tensions, like slavery in the 1800s, tensions back in this time period ran high between masters and slaves. Some masters treated their slaves little, little better than animals. The famous Aristotle described a slave as a living tool. The Roman writer Varro insisted that the only difference between a slave, an animal, and a cart was that the slave could talk. So it was commonplace for masters to mistreat their slaves. In contrast, this centurion recognizes that his slave is about to die and he goes to depend on God and asks Jesus for healing. He cared enough to love his slave. And that's the first visible spiritual fruit in this passage. The second is that he had a love for the nation of Israel. Uh, Look with me at verses 4 and 5. It says, When they came to Jesus, these are the, um, the elders, when they came to Jesus, they earnestly employed, implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. In verse 5, it taught, these Jewish elders described the centurion as loving their nation. This was a reference to the centurion's general regard for the Jewish people. It is another fruit of the Spirit. Because he doesn't just love his slave, one particular slave. He has a love for the nation of Israel. 
And you think because most of the, at that point in time, most people didn't like the Jewish people. They didn't like the Jewish nation. The Romans in particular considered the Jews to be a filthy race. And the Jews, in response, considered non-Jews to all be unclean. So Jews and Gentiles historically bared some degree of animus towards each other. They did not like each other. They were not on friendly terms. But it is somehow important to recognize that the Jewish elders, the most respected people in the community, are willing to stand up on behalf of this centurion and tell Jesus, he is a good guy. He is worthy. They are interceding on behalf of the centurion to Jesus. And they say, they say that that he was extremely generous towards the synagogue. So this centurion exhibits fruits of the spirit in that he loves his slave. He has a general love for the nation of Israel, but he's also generous towards the synagogue. Because in the second part of verse 5, it says, it was he who built us our synagogue. True love is not just theoretical and abstract. True love is demonstrable. It is manifestly visible. And in this particular case, the centurion showed his love for the Jewish people by building their synagogue. Now, it doesn't mean he rolled up his sleeves and built it rock by rock, but it basically meant that he probably helped finance it. So this centurion, who makes his money and makes his living and accumulates his wealth by the sweat of his brow and by the bleeding that he endures on the battlefield, was willing to give his money to help the Jewish people build a synagogue. At a time when Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. At a time when Jewish people, there were some Jewish sects, some Jewish groups of people who would try and hurt Roman soldiers. At this period of time, there's this one centurion who loves the Jewish people enough that he says, I know you guys want a synagogue. You want a meeting place for worship. I'm not going to build it for you, but I'm going to help finance it. I'm going to be generous towards you. You see, true faith results not only in dependence on God, but it results in fruits of the Spirit. And those fruits make an impact upon other people. This centurion is not just a man who has theoretical faith. He had a faith that did works. He loved his slave even when it was commonplace to mistreat slaves. He loved the Jewish people when it seemed like everybody hated them. And he was even willing to display generosity towards them as evidence of his love for these people. When you have true faith, it shows up in your lifestyle. It's not just some theoretical thing. It shows up in how you care for people, how you speak to people, how you take an interest in their lives. That you're willing to engage with your coworkers and with your friends on a, deep, on a deeper level than talking of the weather. That you take the time to remember the last time your coworker shared about, uh, I don't know, a difficult, a difficult family event. And you follow up. You know, some people would say, oh, well, you just re- have such a great memory. No. Sometimes you might have great memory, but oftentimes what propels and compels that memorization is that it's important to you. Because we remember things that are important to us, right? I don't know, like a spouse's name or your wedding anniversary, things like that. And if you really can't remember, you'll tattoo it somewhere so you'll never forget it. But, but it's important enough to you, you'll remember it, right? 
it is this kind of love, this kind of care, that this centurion exhibited. And the centurion had this amazing faith. It was a faith that resulted in dependence on God and resulted in fruits of the Spirit. Third, this faith also resulted in an accurate view of self. This faith resulted in an accurate view of self. Now, now what's interesting in this account is, is really to pay attention to how the Jewish elders describe this centurion. Right? In verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. The, these, these Jewish elders are basically describing the centurion as being worthy of Jesus' healing. You see, the elders thought that the centurion had to be worthy in order to qualify for Jesus' healing. But the centurion has an accurate view of himself. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For what? For I am not worthy. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And it's ironic that these Jewish elders describe the centurion as being worthy. But when you ask the centurion, he doesn't think himself worthy at all. And this is evidence of the centurion's faith. It was, a, it was a deep faith, and it was a faith that resulted in an accurate view of himself. The centurion does not see himself as worthy to receive anything that Jesus has to offer. And in all likelihood, the centurion didn't consider himself worthy enough to even talk to Jesus. That's why he sent the Jewish elders. He didn't send the Jewish elders because somehow he thought he was too, such, too, too much of a big shot to go personally. He sent the Jewish elders because he thought Jesus would respect them more than Jesus would respect him. Who is he? Some Gentile? Some Gentile Roman soldier? So the centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy enough to talk to you, Jesus. Who am I? Who am I to ask this of you? And in this verse, in verses 6 and 7, the centurion tells Jesus, please don't come to my home. I am not worthy for you to even set foot in my house. This is not a disinvitation, right? Uh, this, is not, this, is not a, uh, this is not meant to offend Jesus. It's a statement of unworthiness. The centurion did not feel worthy for Jesus to step into his house. You see, the centurion understood who he was. He was a sinner. He was spiritually bankrupt and unworthy to ask anything of Jesus. He had no standing. There was nothing he could claim 
that would make Jesus want to care for him more. Faith that is amazing results in an accurate view of self. Not a single one of us on our best days is worthy of salvation. We are always perpetually unworthy by ourselves. And I know that, I know that you know, you've been under Roger's preaching, so you, you know this stuff. I mean, this is, this is just basic gospel truths. But how thoroughly has it permeated your life? How thoroughly has it transformed how you talk? You know, when, uh, when you share your testimony, what comes out? What kind of story comes out? You know, I hear a lot of testimonies. And, uh, you know, for people who grew up in church, I hear this one a lot. It goes a little something like this. It says, I grew up in the church for most of my life, and I knew about God. I just didn't believe in God until later on. Throughout high school, I wasn't a particularly bad person. I mean, I didn't do drugs. I didn't have sex with people. I got good grades. I got into a good school. But I wasn't perfect, and I still fell short of the glory of God. And, and, and somehow I realized that I wasn't really saved. So I committed my life to God and became a Christian. Now, on the surface, that sounds, sounds about right. Or does it? If you take the time to think about it, that testimony, it's not wrong. It lacks a deep understanding of yourself. Because there isn't really a point in the testimony where the person admits his utter wickedness and total depravity before God. It's almost as if this person is saying, I was okay, okay, but I wasn't perfect. I was good, but I wasn't that good. I wasn't God good. And that's like, it's like saying that I almost got there and Jesus kind of gave me that last push to get over into heaven. I think the problem with that is you think you're so close. (laughs) It's like, do you think God is down here? In contrast, a deep faith says this. A deep faith confesses, I am totally unworthy. I have sinned so much against God. And even if I didn't act it out, and even if people didn't see it, God knew the wickedness and evil that was within my heart. And even if I looked good from far, I was far from good, and God knew the better of it. He knew the truth. He knew the blackness of my soul. And He reached out and saved a person like me. And I cannot say that there's anything great about me, but that I have a wonderful, gracious Savior. That is the kind of testimony that has an accurate view of self, but it is also a kind of testimony that has the accurate view of God. Which is the fourth point. Faith not only results... In dependence on God, number one, it results in fruits of the Spirit, number two, it results in an accurate view of self, but fourth, it results in a high view of God, verses seven and eight. It says, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion not only has an accurate view of himself, which is unworthy, but he also has a high view of God. Based on these verses, the centurion believed that Jesus had, has the absolute authority to heal whomever, however, and wherever he wanted to. The centurion likens Jesus' authority to heal to his own authority in military service. You see, the centurion of all people understood what it meant to have authority. If the centurion told some soldiers, move, they move. Period. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's just move. Done. And just like in the military today, the orders were not supposed to be questioned. They are to be obeyed. End of story. There's a tight structure in place. There is a proper chain of command. And the authority wielded within that chain of command should be, in most cases, absolute. I mean, you've heard the saying, right? General tells a soldier to jump. The soldier only asks, how high? The soldier understands that he must obey. It's not even a question. And so the centurion takes his understanding of authority and he relates it back to Jesus. The centurion has authority over 100 soldiers. Jesus has authority over every person's soul and body. So the centurion says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. That's it. That's all you have to do. But what does this indicate about the centurion's view of God? He believed that Jesus did not have to be present to heal. Jesus does not have to be in the same room. He doesn't have to touch this person. He doesn't have to say some sort of magical phrase. He doesn't have to use some sort of holy water. It's none of that. Jesus does not have to be present to heal. Furthermore, Jesus does not have to see the person. Jesus heals beyond visual range. Third, the centurion believed that Jesus did not have to pray over someone to heal them. Or anything magical or anything procedural. It was simple. Jesus had to want it and it would happen. If Jesus wills, so it, so it takes place. And this centurion had a remarkable faith in God. He had a faith that had an extremely high view of God. While others around him needed to reach out and touch Jesus, this centurion, this non-Jew understood that Jesus only had to speak it and it would be done. Do you have that kind of view of God? Is your view of who God is appropriately high? Do you pray? And when you pray, do you actually believe that God has the ability to answer those prayers? Or do you just kind of pray because, well, I I ought to cross every T and dot every I. I might as well cover all my bases. James reminds us that the one who asks of God should ask in faith, not doubting. And when you pray, you ought to have a mindset, the mindset that God can answer your prayers. It's not an issue of ability. It's simply an issue of willingness. That is why we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fifth and finally, faith results in God's pleasure. 
Faith results in God's pleasure. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And turning and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Faith, fifth and finally, fifth, uh, faith results in God's pleasure. God will reward such faith. God sees this kind of faith and he is pleased just as Jesus was pleased here. He marveled at the centurion's faith. Jesus saw this man's heart. He knew what this man actually believed. And what is sad is that Jesus came to his own people, the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. And so Jesus would also bring the message of salvation to non-Jews, the Gentiles. And the centurion was one of them. Now I want you to understand one small point because people can abuse this. God's pleasure in the centurion's faith does not obligate him to save the centurion's slave. I say this because there are false teachers out there who teach that if you just have enough faith, God will do anything you want him to. And that's not true. God is never obligated to do what you want him to do unless he has promised to do it. And even if he has promised to do it, he's not obligated because you have called him on it. He's obligated because he cannot lie. And because what he says, he will do. God is bound by his own word, not by our faith. So then it does not depend on our faith, but rather on God's will. And in this story, the centurion slave was healed. But even if his slave had not been healed, the centurion's faith would still be amazing. I hope and pray that you desire God's pleasure in your life. My hope, certainly at the end of my life, is to hear, Well done, good and faithful slave, from my Lord and Master Jesus Christ. I hope to God that I can live in a way that pleases Him. Because more than reward and more than recognition in this life, I just want God to be pleased with how I've lived. I want Him to be honored with whatever gifts He's given to me and I've tried to be responsible with them. And my brothers and sisters of Grace Bay Area this weekend, I want us to think about this and to take a lesson from this example of faith. Jesus regularly amazed people around him. And yet tonight, Jesus was amazed by this centurion's faith. It was a fully mature faith. It was a faith that was deep. It was based, it, it, was, it resulted in dependence on God. In fruits of the Spirit, in an accurate view of self, in a high view of God. And ultimately, in God's pleasure. As we continue studying through the marks of maturity this weekend, I really do hope that we can all retreat. To draw away and to pull back from the hustle and bustle of everyday life so that we may consider and ponder deeper questions. How is our faith? How are we doing? In what areas do we need to grow? In what ways have we been challenged? Or are we being challenged? And how can we live in a way that is pleasing to the God who sent his one and only son that we might have eternal life?
Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, just for this, this, uh, this story, this record, this account of an amazing, of an amazing faith. Lord, we, we know so much about you. We read, we read scripture, we know things. Help us to believe it. Help, help those facts, those truths to permeate and saturate our souls, to envelop our lives, and to ultimately deepen our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but we have three more sermons to go, and my heart is already bursting. Thank you, John, so much for not just explaining that passage in a technical way, but in your explanation of the Jews and the Gentiles and what a centurion, it just really came alive for me and I believe for uh, all of us. You know, I sitting there listening, it just makes me want to have that kind of faith. Uh, I enjoyed all of it. I want to say so much about this and, and just to thank our, our brother John for this. A couple of things that really stood up to, stood out to me was the phrase, he's not your backup He's your only viable option. Man, that alone is just a truth that we could, our lives could radically change. Um, God is bound by his own word, not by our faith. What a good and humbling reminder when we get so confident and cocky. Well, let's stand. Thank you, John, uh, for that. There's so much more. Let's stand as we close in song. <laughs>